Truth Espresso, episode 255. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso, and this is another episode of Truth Espresso Express. And I'm headed to work on a warm morning, but according to weather, we're eventually supposed to get rain, possibly this afternoon or evening, and then have rainy days for a streak of three, four, maybe even five days somewhat and so that will be definitely welcome as we've had quite a few warm days in a row here and so on this episode of truth espresso last night i was looking at an article for christian writers talking about what the writer considered some of the hardest verses in the bible so asking questions like how do we deal with that and i'll provide a link to that article in the show notes but I must say, I was expecting that there would be a different set of verses when we're thinking of the hardest verses in the Bible. But I'll roll with it. These verses can be challenging for some people. They just require a little bit of study to answer. These have historically been verses over which people have contended and offer different interpretations and have also offered as problems for the Bible. And so we'll get into some of these hard verses to understand or interpret or solve. Like I'm expecting some difficult verses to be verses that you would find in the law or say the verse about blessed are those who would dash their infants on a rock and you know, those type of verses. But the first verse that this article that I was looking at for Christian writers came up was from Genesis. So it's two verses from Genesis chapter 4. And these are the infamous verses that talk about Cain. So that Cain knew his wife and, you know, she conceived and bore Enoch. And so then the question is, well, who was Cain's wife? Where did Cain get a wife? Because... Before this point, all we're told is that, you know, you have Adam and Eve, and then you have um, Cain and Abel, the first two sons. And then, of course, Cain kills his brother Abel, and then so now, what do you have? Adam and Eve and Cain left. And then eventually, afterwards, when God puts the mark on Cain, that anyone who sees him would kill him, and Cain says, my punishment's greater than I can bear. Eventually, Cain, he has a child with his wife, and then eventually establishes a city. So the question is, well, where did Cain get his wife? Don't we just have Adam and Eve and Cain? And, like, I'm sure his wife isn't his own mother, Eve, here, right? Other people will offer explanations that maybe <laughs> somehow there were pre-Adam humans. Which, of course, I'll talk about that. That poses a problem with everything we know about soteriology as taught in especially the New Testament. So where did Cain get his wife? 
Now, if we look a little further, we see in Genesis 5, verse 4, that it says that after Cain killed Abel, eventually, you know, you see this theme, at least indirectly, that there had to be a godly line. You would think from the narrative, okay, well, Abel would have been the godly line, and Cain receives the curse that anyone would kill him, the mark of Cain, such. Now, I don't want to get into goofy theories about how the mark of Cain produced certain minority populations or people who somehow are considered subhuman. I don't agree with any of that. The mark of Cain just seems to be a mark on Cain himself for his crime. But Adam and Eve bore Seth, so now, okay, so now we have two sons. So, yeah, well, what about where did Cain get his wife? But Genesis 5, verse 4 says that it talks about the life, the, how long Adam lived after he bore Seth, but it also mentions that he bore sons and daughters. So Cain, Abel, and Seth were not the only children of Adam and Eve. Because then how could any woman, even living today, consider herself a progeny of Adam? But this verse is key to understand where Cain got his wife. So Adam and Eve bore sons and daughters. So more sons, at least, it says that in the days that he bore Seth, the days he lived were 800 years and he begot sons and daughters. So if he begot sons that were Cain and Abel and Seth, he also bore daughters, but I would surmise that Adam and Eve also bore other sons besides these three, along with the daughters as that's mentioned. So now you have females, a pool of females from which Cain could get his wife. Now the natural response to that is going to say, wait a minute, so you're saying that Cain married his sister? I mean, Adam didn't marry his sister Eve, God created Eve, but where did Cain get his wife? He got it from his sister? Isn't that, well, incest? Well, according to today's standards, and according to even the standards that you'd find in the Law of Moses, definitely yes. You could not marry direct siblings, if I recall correctly, even direct cousins in the Law of Moses. But what about this time? Because after all, you need the first parents need to reproduce and, the, and those children need to reproduce and so on. Everyone has to go back to Adam and Eve ultimately. And since we have the verse that tells us where Cain would have gotten his wife, now we have to understand how that works. So at this time, we think Adam and Eve being the mitochondrial parents, they had all the genetic information from which all the human race would come from. So they, being the direct creations of God, they would have a very strong genetic variety within themselves. They were the perfect purebreds here. And then when you have genetic diversity, you end up with pronounced characteristics among people. But at this time, you didn't have the law of Moses. At this time, you had the plan of God. So God telling Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So how would they do that unless their offspring could then further produce offspring and that would necessitate sons and daughters marrying each other? 
but the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve would have a significant genetic variability. And so therefore, if you were to propose a problem of genetics as a reason Cain could not marry his sister, that wasn't a problem. Also, since the law of Moses was not around at this time, this was something that would be different at this time and because of that genetic variability. Just as at this time, people did not eat meat until after the flood, and then you also had when God called Israel out of Egypt and gave them the law of which there were the clean and unclean animals. They could eat clean animals and not unclean. But yet, so after the flood, God told Noah, you know, you may eat of the animals, because things changed after the flood, but before the flood, it seemed that everyone was vegetarian. So the laws can be different as necessary for the environment and according to God's design for progeny. And, you know, it's necessary that things work out this way for Adam and Eve and Cain and his wife, such that all human beings are the progeny of Adam, because we have federal headship, as we're explained in Romans chapter 5, that everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. So one man who sinned and then death passed upon all men for that all have sinned because we all inherit death through sin through Adam. We inherit the sin nature, but we willingly sin. So we are in Adam via Adam's fall and then our subsequent sinning as a result of the sin nature that we inherit. But then we are in Christ as a result of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, faith in the Messiah and his person and his work, as we see in Isaiah 53, as it's applied as a prophecy of the Messiah who would come, and it says that he would see his offspring. So those who are in Christ, those who are the offspring of Christ, are those who are the saints, the believers, those who are followers of Messiah, regenerated by the Holy Spirit those who believe the gospel. Those are the offspring of Christ. Obviously not in a literal physical sense, but as Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born from above, you have to be born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is, uh, is spirit. And also as you have uh, Paul referring to Timothy as his son in the faith, you have Peter referring to Silvanus as his son. Even though they were not their physical offspring, they were their son in the faith. So those who are in Christ, those who are under the federal headship of Christ, are those who are believers, who are regenerated, given a new nature, by means of the Holy Spirit, through application of the gospel and the person and work of Christ, and those who are in Adam are those who are his physical progeny, who also partake of the sin nature and sin and death through sin. And so all of that is important. And so it is, a, it is utterly important for Christians, Orthodox Christians, who understand creation, understand that all humans come from Adam and Eve, and that we understand that this is necessary for federal headship and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, it is also necessary then to understand that Cain got his wife from his sister because Adam and Eve bore sons and daughters. So that's the answer to the first hard passage from the Bible. Parenting isn't about us. In fact, 
parenting isn't even about our kids. Parenting is just one way Christian dads and moms are to worship God. So welcome to the Truth Love Parent Podcast, where we train dads and moms to give God the preeminence in their parenting. I'm your host, A.M. Brewster, and today we bring our biblical parenting essentials. If you've ever wanted to have me visit your local church, your school, camp, some ministry of some kind, or home even, to speak on how God would have us to parent our kids or any other family topics, please visit truthloveparent.com and click on the speaking tab. And please, of course, share this whole series on your favorite social media outlets so that other Christian parents can mature in their parenting. Subscribe to the show and follow it for weekly encouragement. And if you and or your family need some specialized and individualized help, please write to us at counselor at truthloveparent.com or leave a voicemail at 828-423-0894. Listen, I love you more than you realize. I love your family equally, and I'm honored to be invited to serve you at this important time in your life. So Lord willing... I'll see you soon. Truth Love Parent is part of the Evermind Ministries family and is dedicated to helping you worship God through your parenting. So join us next time as we study God's Word to learn how to parent our children for life and godliness. And remember that TLP is a listener-supported ministry. You can visit truthloveparent.com forward slash donate to learn more. The next one that this article lists is from Matthew chapter 27. It mentions that that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet about Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And it's mentioned in prophecy about assess my value, the worth of a servant basically, 30 pieces of silver and then purchase the field of pottery. And then it's also mentioned the Gospels that Judas used the 30 pieces of silver by which he betrayed Jesus, and he purchased the potter's field, and he went and hanged himself. I believe that was Luke Acts that mentions that. And so, here we have a very striking fulfillment of prophecy. But if we were to go look at it, the question becomes, if we were to go look at it, we see that that prophecy is in the prophet Zechariah, not Jeremiah. So is this a mistake in the Bible? Why did the writer of Matthew, why did Matthew say that this was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, if it's written in Zechariah's prophecy? It's in the prophet Zechariah. Well, I offer two explanations for this. The first explanation, I think, is possible but not probable. And then the second explanation is more of what comes from Christian historical scholarship and orthodoxy that understands how we got the scriptures, scriptural transmission. So the first explanation is that we look specifically at the words where it says, that which is spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Notice that a lot of times it says, even Jesus says, that's that which is written, behold, it is written. And a lot of times that which was written in the scriptures, that which is written by the prophet, it was fulfilled that which was written. So here we have a kind of a rare instance where it says that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. So we could understand that Jeremiah at some time during his preaching ministry to Israel spoke this prophecy. But it was not written in his prophecy. So maybe this was something that was spoken by Jeremiah 
And then ultimately, Zechariah wrote it down. Maybe it became something that was well known as a spoken prophecy. And then Zechariah wrote it down. You know, instead of saying it was written in Jeremiah the prophet, it was spoken by Jeremiah personally, but written in Zechariah. Now that's plausible. That takes into account the wording there. And we could say that Jeremiah himself personally spoke this, but didn't write it down. Now, okay, this is kind of an argument from silence, and I don't really like to embrace arguments from silence if I can help it. And so I'll give the second explanation for this. So, Matthew could be correctly saying that it's in Jeremiah the prophet. <laughs> The word spoken itself isn't necessarily a buzzword to say that it's something that's not written in Jeremiah, that he is indeed saying something that's written in Jeremiah. But Daniel, it's not written in Jeremiah. Are you proposing that there's something that Jeremiah wrote down that was lost? No, not at all. I'm saying that when uh, Matthew says that it's spoken in Jeremiah, that it refers to the fact that he's alluding to what is written in, in Jeremiah the prophet, but it's correct to say that it's technically written in Zechariah, that it's correct to cite it that way. But Daniel, aren't you trying to force a contradiction in the Bible? Nope, not at all. And this is to where we understand how when uh, someone in the New Testament's time would refer to how something was written, they would cite the prophets, how this would be done given the way sources were, given the way that the scriptures were sourced. Because we know that during the intertestamental times, you had the books written on scrolls, and these scrolls were laid up in the temple. But the scrolls would often be pretty large. I mean, it would be kind of hard to have a scroll, a meaningful scroll, if you're going to have the large piece of wood in the middle to have to have a separate one for all the copies of, let's say, Obadiah the prophet. So the way these would be organized, even as we understand them today, you have the major prophets and you have the minor prophets. So the major prophets, you'd have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And then you'd also have a bunch of minor prophets. But the way these scrolls would be composed, you know, out for efficiency's sake, it's not as if you, ha you could go to Office Max and buy a package of paper to write on. Paper was somewhat of a precious commodity, and so as you're going to make copies and you're going to make scrolls, this is the way you would do it in Second Temple Judaism. You would make the scrolls according to the major prophets, which are often consulted and cited the most for history and prophecy. And then you would append, after the major prophet, some of the minor prophets. So, for example, in the scroll of Jeremiah, you would have Zechariah later on. Maybe you might have some other minor prophets in that same scroll. But the scroll would be referred to as Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, which scroll? Do you want the scroll of the kings? Or do you want the scroll of Jeremiah the prophet? Which book do you want? Which scroll do you want? Think of the way we might have the Library of Congress set up and you have things divided according to subject. 
And then within those subjects, you could further subdivide it into different authors. But at this time, if you're going to cite something, you would cite it by which scroll it was in. And so to say that which was spoken by Jeremiah, you would say that which was spoken or written in Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah the prophet would be a reference to the book, the scroll that would contain the writing that you're citing that would be formally organized and copied. And so the scroll of Jeremiah would also include the writing of Zechariah and possibly other minor prophets. And so as you're citing Zechariah, you would cite it from the scroll of Jeremiah. And so it's not a contradiction as we understand the citation methodology because of the way the sources were organized at the time of Second Temple Judaism and the writings of the Gospels. So it's not a contradiction to say that something is spoken or written by Jeremiah the prophet because how many times have you ever seen written in the New Testament or especially in the Gospels something that says that it is written in Obadiah the prophet or it's written in Amos the prophet? Now, the Apostle Paul mentions that as it is written in Hosea in Romans chapter 9. So the Apostle Paul, being a very much a scholar of the Old Testament, might make that specification. But it is nevertheless not a contradiction to say that something that is written or even spoken by Jeremiah the prophet is a contradiction or a mistake because they're referring to the source that they cite formally and properly referred to as Jeremiah the prophet. They're referring to the scroll. And so, to sum up these two hard passages, where did Cain get his wife? It was one of his sisters. And how is that not a problem? Well, before the law of Moses made it illegal to marry your sister, and this was necessary for federal headship and the doctrine of salvation, why did Matthew say that something written in Zechariah was, was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet? Well, likely because he's citing the scroll of Jeremiah in which the minor prophet Zechariah is contained. And he's referring to the source, the name of the source, the scroll of Jeremiah the prophet. And he's not making a mistake. It's not a miscitation. It's not a contradiction in the Bible. And so I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Truth Espresso. There's a few more hard passages that are mentioned that I'd like to get into in another episode of Truth Espresso. And so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and Truth Espresso Express. And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.